Why are you here? Didn't expect me to ask that, did you? If you're looking for camaraderie, relationships, you could join a bowling league, a golf league, a book club. There are other places you could go. If you're looking to make a difference in your community or in the world, you could go volunteer at an animal shelter or a food pantry, senior center. If you're looking for an additional hobby, boy, wouldn't today be a great day to be out on a boat? You could take up pickleball. Cutting-edge entertainment is at your fingertips. Movies, hit shows, they beg to be binge-watched. Concert season is ramping up. Live entertainment, sporting events that grab hold of your attention. Grip your senses. They're waiting for you. Your calendar full of demands and little on time. Seems to continually lurk in the shadows of your mind, nagging, teasing, even tormenting you with everything that must be accomplished. In the words of the bandit from Smoking the Bandit, you feel like you've got a long way to go and a short time to get there. And yet, all of those other options... Some of you perhaps would say, I'd just rather be in bed right now. All of those other options, you're here in a 150-year-old building, listening to a guy talking about the Bible that's a lot older than that. Either you and I are wasting our time, and we are to be pitied, or there is something magnificent here. And there is something wonderful through our God that reveals it in His book. It speaks to our souls. It pulls our hearts, I pray, from the temporal blur of everything going on around us to a heart-gripping, laser-focused delight in God. Why are you here? Psalm 92 is going to help us to see that there's nowhere else I would rather be. See, what this passage shows us is that God is glorified in the delight-filled weekly worship of His church. And it is there that we find joy and peace. Let me say this again. God is glorified in the delight-filled weekly worship of his church and it is there that we find joy and peace follow along as i read psalm 92 a psalm a song for the sabbath it is good to give thanks to the lord to sing praises to your name o most high to declare your steadfast love in the morning and your faithfulness by night, to the music of the lute and the harp, to the melody of the lyre. For you, O Lord, have made me glad by your work. At the works of your hands I sing for joy. How great are your works, O Lord! 
Your thoughts are very deep. The stupid man cannot know. The fool cannot understand this. That though the wicked sprout like grass and all evildoers flourish, they are doomed to destruction forever. But you, O Lord, are on high forever. For behold, your enemies, O Lord, for behold, your enemies shall perish. All evildoers shall be scattered. But you have exalted my horn like that of the wild ox. You have poured over me fresh oil. My eyes have seen the downfall of my enemies. My ears have heard the doom of my evil assailants. The righteous flourish like the palm tree and grow like a cedar in Lebanon. They are planted in the house of the Lord. They flourish in the courts of our God. They still bear fruit in old age. They are ever full of sap and green to declare that the Lord is upright. He is my rock, and there is no unrighteousness in Him. May God write these truths of His Word upon our hearts for our good and His glory. We're going to make our way through this passage seeing the delight-filled worship in God and how that shapes us, how we understand it in light of our world. So the first step in verses 1 through 4 is to see our delight simply in the worship of God, our delight in the worship of God. There's an inscription at the beginning of this psalm, a song for the Sabbath. This psalm was given to the people of Israel for their weekly worship. It contains this stirring exhortation of the goodness in giving thanks to God, of singing praises to His name, rejoicing in God's steadfast love and faithfulness, doing basically what the gathered church does week in and week out, continually, nonstop, until we see our Lord again. This provides the first clue as to what is happening. And it begins to answer the question of why we are here. Why are you here? Why we are here to worship. God has become the delight of His people. Now note, one way that we're going to outline this passage is, is through this concept through this idea of delight so verses one through four is what christians delight in aka the worship of god verses five through nine shows us non-christians lack of delight in god and then verses 10 to 15 take a very interesting turn as they show us how delight in god is the secret to life oftentimes we think of christian worship as duty it's what i have to go do where I go on Sunday morning. Sometimes I don't feel like it. That's the case with all of us. But there's delight buried in there. And so what I want to do is I want to turn our eyes, hopefully by God's grace, His Spirit will turn our hearts to seeing this God in whom we can delight. Delighting in God, this concept of it, this rich emotion towards delight, joy, gladness in God might sound kind of odd to you. Strange idea. Perhaps to you it would be no different than delighting in a tree that you see outside. I appreciate the tree. I'm fascinated by the tree. I'm grateful for the shade it offers. I'm, 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 I'm impressed by the beauty of its leaves that change color in the fall. But delighting in the tree? That's just odd. You might say, Stephen, I've never thought of delighting in God. It's like the tree. I just thought I'd come and it's because of what I'm supposed to do. 
But if you see in verses 1 through 4, you see the many ways that God has described, that He's understood, that He's experienced by His people. You see Him described as the Most High, the one who reigns over all creation. That's in verse 1. You see that, that His steadfast love is referenced, declaring your steadfast love in verse 2. His love for us does not waver. God never wakes up on the wrong side of the bed. You never have to, before you're going to take the request, the cries of your heart to Him, you don't ask the person who just prayed, hey, what kind of mood's He in today? Is today a good day to ask? No, He loves us with an unending delight in us. He is faithful. Next time God proves Himself to be unfaithful, to be unkind, ungracious, unmerciful, absent from His people. The next time God does that, let your mind sit on this idea. The next time God shows Himself to be unfaithful will be the first time. It will not happen. It is in His nature that He cannot be unfaithful. And so the psalmist, what we see here is the psalmist delights in these attributes of God. So you say, I want to delight in, the I want to delight in God. Look at His attributes. Recount His goodness. His faithfulness, His might. Pray for God to birth this in you. And then verse 4, For you, O Lord, have made me glad by your work. At the works of your hands I sing for joy. See, the secret is our hearts, they desperately yearn for peace. They desperately yearn for security, for comfort, for hope, for acceptance. By the wonder of God's grace, He proves Himself 100% sufficient to meet these deepest desires and needs that we carry. As your heart is gripped by the uncertainty of what tomorrow may hold, you can look at the very real, historically proven fact of Christ's cross. You can look at His resurrection. You can look at His present reign over His church, over His creation, and His future return for His church. And you can look and you can see the work of the Holy Spirit showing you Jesus and how He has taken hold of you. He will be your security. He will be your hope. He will never let you go. As your heart needs to be warmed by a love that never leaves you because loves in this life seem to always leave you. May you look upon Jesus whose love for you is not established for you in anything less than His own blood shed for you on the cross. His blood is sure to meet our needs not just for today but for eternity. And we look at His cross and it is not some cosmic accident where God sent His Son to earth and He came in order that He might help us out in some way and then as the cross was getting closer and closer they looked up and realized that they had been flummoxed no, the cross and the wisdom and the sovereignty of God was set in motion in eternity past that God might redeem and set His love upon those who belong to Him. And so, brothers and sisters, may we delight in His faithfulness. Whatever weighs upon your heart right now, He can and He will show Himself No height, no, nor depth, nor anything in all of creation. Not even, imagine this, not even yours or my willful sin against Him. 
be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. As I mentioned, one thing that's fascinating about this passage is it's written as a song for the Sabbath. Sabbath was a day of rest. God commanded for His people. He gave to them for their good. But the Sabbath was not something that was first established like in the Ten Commandments. That's where you see it mentioned. But where was it first established? You actually see it. What? God rested on the seventh day of creation way back in Genesis. God created for six days and rested on the seventh. As the Lord gave His law to His people after rescuing them, He commanded them to keep the Sabbath. This command for the people of God to slow down, to worship, to recognize that in their stopping from business, from commerce, from work, from tilling the ground, from farming, from all of these things that they say, oh, this must be done, and they're stopping, their hearts are being reminded, you cannot do it apart from God. He is the one who must work. And yet, in the Jewish week, the Sabbath was from sundown on Friday to sundown on Saturday, and yet here we are on Sunday. Why is that? Do you remember the cross where Jesus, right before he died, what did he say? He said, it is finished. Atonement for our sins had been accomplished. The work of God by which he would create a new people was done. He was put in the tomb and then he was resurrected, not on the Sabbath, but on a Sunday morning, on Lord's Day. And now we rest on the first day of the week, Sunday, the Lord's Day. We, we do not work with a rest and a salvation. Or we, we, we do not work because we rest and take hope in our salvation that has come to us in Christ. So we don't work with looking forward to the Sabbath that, 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 that we hope to earn in our work. But we serve the Lord because He has accomplished our salvation. Now every week when we gather for worship, we recount the faithfulness. We recount the steadfast love. We recount the unwavering grace, the abundant new mercies, the sure hope that we share in Christ. Each and every week we are doing one thing. Delighting in our God and what this is revealing to us is it's preparing us for heaven. We carry into this room the very real, stressful, heart-rending burdens of this life. But though we may feel that they will be our undoing, as we rejoice in and are reminded of the sure attributes of God and the faithfulness of God to us in the gospel, our souls, parched they may be, are nourished yet again with the living waters of the grace of God. Has it ever occurred to you that the gathered church serves as a postcard from heaven? Are postcards still a thing? Do people send those or do they just like post pictures on Instagram or Facebook? I think the last postcard I got was when the Feenies went to Hawaii. I don't know if I told you. Thank you. This isn't a request for you guys to send me postcards. The church serves as a, as, a, as a picture, an instant, a moment. Postcards, what do you write? Wish you were here. Look how beautiful it is. 
When the church gathers for worship, we serve both ourselves as well as any visitors who are in our midst, serving and showing them, hey, there is a glory and a grace, a love that has your name on it, a mercy that can overwhelm your heart, that is available to you and that is promised to you for all of eternity if you will look to Christ. And you look around and you see all of these people singing. You see all of these people sitting under the preaching of God's Word. You see all of these things and you are, you, you are a witness to a kingdom that is to come. To a good God. A faithful, merciful, gracious Lord who meets the needs, who stirs the affections, who comforts the burdens, and who cares for His sweet So what we see gathering every Sunday morning here at 660 Country Way is a postcard from heaven preparing our hearts for the real thing. I don't know if I'm going to sing the wrong verses in heaven like I do here every Sunday. I always start one song on the wrong verse. It's just something weird. I don't know if you're going to get that. But what you are going to get is you're going to see your Savior. The one who his word tells us that he will sustain us. In that day, we will see his face and he will wipe the tears from our eyes. You know what else, brothers and sisters, we need in our worship? We need one another. We need one another. This song for the Sabbath was given to us because it's important. There are some Sundays where, where the room is just a little fuller, where the singing is just a little louder. Do you recognize that our presence for one another serves for the joy of each other's hearts? One of the most blessed things I like to do some Sundays, if it's a song that I really like, just a lot of them, because I get to help pick the music, but... If it's a song that, I, that, 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 that just stirs and moves my heart, one thing sometimes I'll do is I'll stop singing and just listen to my brothers and sisters sing. Is there nothing more sweet to the fearful, tired, exhausted, worried Christian than to hear the lullaby of their, of their brothers and sisters singing of the goodness of God? It's to know one another, to know the burdens that each of us are carrying, and to be able to say, I see my brother or sister grieving the loss of a precious loved one, and I see them even in tears rejoicing in the steadfast love of God, or I see my brother or sister battling terrible sickness or illness, singing of how her Lord will hold her fast. Brothers and sisters, we need one another in this. We need to encourage one another as we sit under the preaching of God's Word. Hey, what did you hear in that sermon that, that, that stirred your heart towards trusting Christ? Yeah, that's what I heard. I need that too. Will you pray for me for that this week? We need that in one another. And so let us see our, our attendance, our, our, our participation in the worship. It's not just something I go and I get filled, but we come and we help fill one another. So let's prioritize that on our calendars and recognize 
the great importance of this in the life of the body. By our presence with one another, we help to serve for the delight of each other's hearts and souls. So according to Psalm 92, the gathered worship of the people of God is of great delight, serving as a picture of eternal joys to come. But now the psalmist takes an interesting turn and asks us to consider the delights of those who do not worship God. So secondly, we see the destiny of those who do not delight in the worship of God. He brings us out of the glories in verses 1-4 through four to, to the, the back to earth and to those who do not delight in God, those who have little to no use for Him in verses 5-9. through nine. The joy of their hearts is found elsewhere. Look at verse 5. How great are your works, O Lord! Your thoughts are very deep. The stupid man cannot know. The fool cannot understand. That though the wicked sprout like grass and all evildoers flourish, they are doomed to destruction forever. But you, O Lord, are on high forever. For behold, your enemies, O Lord. For behold, your enemies shall perish. All evildoers shall be scattered. This is one of those where you want to ask the psalmist. Now, that was an interesting turn coming off of verses 1 through 4. That was a plot twist I didn't expect. The steadfast love of the Lord, you will destroy your enemies. Hmm. But do you see what the psalmist is saying? Those who do not delight in God will be doomed to destruction. Our human condition, our human DNA is marred by sin. Think of sin as rebellion against God. We do not want God. We do not, in our, in our nature, in our, in, our, in our original condition, we do not find Him interesting. We certainly don't find Him delightful. Our hearts towards God are by default. You remember the movie uh, Home Alone 2? When Kevin uh, goes to his uncle's house in New York City and he rigs it up with all the booby traps for the bad guys and the house is like a total renovation. It, it, the, the, the power is off. Everything is shut down. That's our hearts before the grace of God encounters it. We need the God-glorifying actor God himself to turn on the lights of our hearts. This is what the psalmist is revealing to us. We need God to cause us to come alive spiritually. This was the story of my own soul, my own heart. It's the story of each and every one of us who are Christians who are gathered here. We don't drift into delighting in God. The power must be divinely turned on. question I asked at the outset of the sermon. Why are you here? That's a question I asked in my heart regularly when I was younger and attended church with my family. I was forced to attend church with my family. I would drag into church a tired teenager having stayed up too late with my friends. Their parents didn't make them go to church, and yet there I was. And the weirdest thing, I would literally sit there in the pew and I'd look at it and I'd look at the musicians preparing, and they had smiles on their faces. I'd see everyone else walking in in their Sunday best. And it made no sense to me. I'm thinking, what are you people doing? You people are here of your own choosing? And you're happy? That's the position you're in this morning. You don't want to be here. You're counting the minutes on your phone or on your watch. You think this stuff is the stuff of fairy tales, not real life. You think God is not there. 
Or if he's there, he's not interested in everything going on in this world. Think of him kind of like a Gandalf in the sky with a big flowing robe and big gray-white beard. Angels you picture as fat little babies playing harps and sitting on clouds. The idea of taking joy in that, in that God, your heart being glad in Him, that just seems so off. Regardless, you may not want to be here, but I want to thank you for being here. I tell you, I've been in that exact same boat, as have so many others in this room. And what has happened? God, by His grace, has turned on the lights. Do you see the seriousness of what God is saying in this power, in this passage? God's just punishment of those who live in rebellion against Him. That is an uncomfortable subject, is it not? He promises to destroy those who are His enemies. He calls them wicked. He says they are intellectually stupid. They are foolish. And I encourage you to take consideration of this passage. Does it describe you? How do I know if it describes me? Does your heart delight in God? If you're the kind of person who has little interest in God, may I encourage you to carefully investigate what the Bible says on this topic. Should you at the very least not give careful consideration to these claims? None of us would go to a doctor that only told us the things we want to hear. And yet so often that's what we look for in what we think about God. I want the God that's going to tell me what I want to hear, not the God of the Bible. See, what we find is the God of the Bible, he sometimes does not tell us what we want to hear. He tells us what we need to hear. But then so often what else he does is he shows us a glory that is greater than we could imagine. And he captivates our hearts in ways that only he can. The gods that we imagine in our own heart, they can't do that. See, in our lives, we get so twisted and tangled with, with the pursuits, the desires of our own heart, the things that we try to build to accomplish for the glory of our name, the things that we try to bring into ourselves for our, for our purpose, for our security, whether it's relationships with other people, whether it's business success, whether it's great accomplishments, whatever it may be. And yet God says all of that is it's, it's meaningless. It gets lost in the wash. I read a pastor who served, maybe still serves, I don't know, a church out in the Bay Area of California. When he was a little boy, he played Monopoly all the time with his grandmother, and she would always mop the floor with him. He played her a few times, and she just kept winning, 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 winning. He could not dodge the houses, the hotels that she would build on her properties. So one summer, he resolved to brush up on his, on, on his Monopoly abilities, and he played just all the time with a neighbor. Then at the end of the summer, he went to play with his grand, grandmother again. Did I say his mom? I meant to say his grandmother. He went to play with his grandmother again, and he finally won. He finally learned that the way to win Monopoly was not to save up all his money as he was trying to do, but was actually to invest in properties and make money by bleeding uh, rent payments from his competitors. Finally, upon beating his grandmother, he describes the scene of, 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 of his victory like this. I can still remember the moment. It was Madison Avenue. I took her last dollar from her. I had pulverized her into bankruptcy. She said, well done. You've learned how to play the game. Now you have one more lesson to learn. When the game is over, it goes back in the box. 
so, so, so easily do we believe that our successes, our accomplishments, the little gods that we seek in this life will be of eternal significance. But the truth is that eventually it will all go back in the box. And we will stand before God. Did we reject him? Did we rebel against him? Or did we find him to be worthy of the worship and the delight of our hearts? What do we do as Christians with this? Well, a few things. First, we look to Christ. This is an invitation for you. We look to Christ. We don't look to him as ones who we say, well, well you aren't as bad as those other ones who are described as enemies of God here. No, we look to Christ who, who, who took the punishment of an enemy of God that we may be made sons and daughters of God. We never grow tired of that fact. We never grow tired that it was on the cross that we deserved the judgment and the justice of God. And yet Christ willingly, for the joy that was set before him, and the joy of his people and the glory and the worship of his name, he endured the cross that we might look upon him. So first, as Christians, we look to Christ. If you're not a Christian, if you're wrestling over this, say, what do I do with this? I would love to speak with you after our service. Just feel free to grab me down in the lobby afterwards. So as Christians, we look to Christ. Secondly, we pray for those whom we know and who we live around who this describes. Pray for God to, by His grace, to grab hold of hearts, to open their eyes to see Jesus. Pray for the delights of their life to prove unsatisfactory and for them to come to Christ and rest, rest in Him. And then lastly, we seek to understand how the gospel translates to the whole of our lives. This message of the gospel is not a train ticket to heaven that you only pull out when you get there. No, the work of Christ is an invitation to delight in Him and see His vital importance now. So the psalm is asserting that there are two kinds of people, those who delight in God and those who do not. Those who worship God with the people of God, those who are numbered with the saints. And now in an interesting turn and change, we see lastly the benefits, the blessings, I would say secondary blessings, but real blessings of delighting in God, and that is in the worship. Delighting in God in worship is the secret of life, verses 10 to 15. If you were to just scroll through verses 12 to 15, you see the righteous are described as ones who are flourishing, who are growing, who are planted, who are bearing fruit, declaring that the Lord is upright. See, what the psalmist is saying here is you want to understand not only God, but you want to understand your life in light of the glory of God. You want to understand that? You want, you want your life to make sense as a servant of God, and now you're going into the business, now you're going into the home, now you're going into the workplace, now you're going into to your community and interacting with your neighbors, you're watching the ball game. You want to understand how your life and your passions and all of these fit together? It's found, first of all, in delighting in God. See, we have so much anger, we have so much vitriol, we have so much, so much tension in our world because we try to make non-ultimate things ultimate things. And the psalmist says, you understand your heart, and you understand this world rightly, you will delight in God and all these other things will play second. One thing C.S. Lewis's writings have helped me understand is how as human beings we mix up and mess up our desires. 
But God, by His grace, has the ability to reorder these desires. Let me give one such example. Imagine a man who desires marriage deeply. He's desperate to be married. So he seeks it out. As he dates or as he meets and as he interacts with others, he looks, as he looks for a possible spouse, the stakes are so high in his own mind that this places strains upon relationships and it places uh, uh, excess weight upon his heart so that he feels this profound pressure in himself that he feels like even a failure if this desire of his heart is not satisfied. Can do that. You can see this happen with success in business or the pursuit of comfort. Really, almost anything that our hearts seek out. But what Lewis reveals is that only God can rightly hold that first place of priority in our lives. And Lewis is just revealing to us what Psalm 92 has already shown us. If we put something else there, like the man with the relationship, the center cannot hold. It causes havoc in our hearts. It causes havoc in our relationships with others because we are looking to them for something more than they can provide. Do you want your life to make sense? Do you want it to feel like you have purpose and that, that you aren't seeking or trying to find validation in everything else? Let the Lord Jesus take that place of supremacy over your life and then allow all other things to be filled in under the Lordship of Christ. Is your marriage in a rut? The solution might not be that you need to focus more on your spouse. It might be that you're focusing too much on your spouse. Your spouse's greatest need is for your heart to delight in our precious Lord Jesus Christ more and more and more. This psalm begins with testimonies of the glories of the gathered worshipers of God. Then it ends by asserting this, that true worship of the saints is the key to us navigating life. Verse 12 and following, the righteous flourish like the palm tree and grow like a cedar in Lebanon. They are planted in the house of the Lord. They flourish in the courts of our God. They still bear fruit in old age. They are ever full of sap and green to declare that the Lord is upright. He is my rock, and there is no unrighteousness in Him. Do you see this? How the worship of God, foundational and and pivotal and, 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 and at the core of our lives, actually helps to order our lives outward? A few years ago, Harvard professor Tyler Vandeville, professor at the Chan School of Public Health at Harvard, released an absolutely fascinating study. His study had found that regular participation in a religious worship service had profoundly positive effects on both the physical and mental health of all of those who regularly participated. Those who attended services had lower rates of depression, were more optimistic, were less likely to commit suicide, and are 20 to 30% less likely to die even over a 15-year period. Vandevel rightly asserts that if you take this data and look at it, declining worship attendance in our world could be described as nothing less than a public health crisis. The science seems to bear out what the psalmist writes in Psalm 92. You want to be happier? Worship with God's people. You want life to make sense? Worship the author of life. Worship the Lord of your life. So how do we not make this guilt trip, though? How do I, I, as I'm thinking through this as a pastor, how do I not make this just a ticket to a better life? Well, I think the secret of life now is to anticipate eternal life to come. 
It is to yearn for that grace of God to wash over you, to transform you, to change your delights, to to ask the Lord to cause the things of this earth to grow strangely dim in the light of His glory and grace. It's to meditate on those attributes. It's to meditate on the work of Christ, the glory of the gospel, what God's Word says about us and our need for Him, and what God's Word shows us about the faithfulness and the steadfast love of Christ who has met all of those needs in His work. And what we do week by week by week by week, we rehearse and we rehearse and we rehearse and we rehearse these truths over and over again. Because what this is, is dress rehearsal for the glorious worship of our King one day. Why are you here? Where else would you be? You want to get to the core of who you are? You want to be true to yourself? Anchor your life to the worship of God. God is glorified in the delight-filled weekly worship of His church. And there we find joy and peace.